What are new ways to think about and contend with climate change? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. This episode is called Environment Crisis. We're looking for new ideas to contend with the threat of climate change, how to understand the varied reactions to the threat, and how to communicate with different groups who may not agree. We're going to play for you a recent conversation we had with Lauren Smith and Stephanie Scholdice. Lauren Smith is a PhD candidate in the Society, Environment, and Emotions Lab, where she studies human responses to life-threatening environmental messaging. She's investigating how existential threats influence environmental attitudes and decision-making, and how these threats may influence intergroup biases. In the future, Lauren hopes to broaden westernized ideas of death care and change our relationship with death. Stephanie Scholdice is a Royal Roads University Doctor of Social Science candidate and Society, Environment, and Emotions Lab member interested in emotions' role in environmental decision-making. She is currently exploring how to design outreach efforts that can overcome disgust reactions to water recycling practices. Stephanie also has more than eight years' experience helping municipalities encourage community members to adopt more sustainable decisions related to solid waste, water, and wastewater. Here's the conversation with Ms. Smith and Mrs. Scholdice. Lauren and Stephanie, welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. Hi, thank you so much for having us. (laughs) Hi, Lauren. Hi, Stephanie. Uh, It's great to be here. Thank you for being our guest. It's a pleasure to have you both on our show. This episode is about climate change and how we can better understand the way some people cope with it or deny its danger. We want to get your perspective on the threat to our environment, particularly from your work in terror management theory and whatever else you think is relevant. Is that okay? Yeah, sounds great. Great. Okay. So, Lauren, can we start with you? What is terror management theory? Sure. So terror management theory combines the teachings of Ernest Becker, specifically what Becker thought about death anxiety, combines that with some social psychology. So essentially what terror management theory tries to do and the people that use this theory try to empirically test Becker's ideas around death anxiety so that they can be figure out with sort of scientific evidence how they work in the real world. So Becker's writing had lots of thoughts and a bit more philosophical, and this kind of takes the psychology to test it out and see what are human responses to death anxiety and death reminders. So what we know from terror management theory is that humans respond in some predictable ways around death reminders, Um, and I think we'll talk about different ways that that happens a bit later, so I'll leave that for now. But sort of in brief, human responses to death reminders are to seek out ways to boost our self-esteem and to try and find ways that we can live forever, maybe in different ways. I feel like that leaves it on a good cliffhanger. There you go. (laughs) To be determined. Stephanie, Stephanie, why is terror management theory important? Well, everyone has to come to terms with death and reminders that we die are everywhere. You know, when you watch TV, browse the news, driving past emergency vehicles, it's all around us. And death anxiety is a universal concern that we have to contend with. And our efforts to manage death fears can influence our everyday actions, such as lifestyle choices, recreational activities, landscaping preferences, consumption decisions. So TMT is highly important for helping us explain, understand, and predict human behaviors. This theory offers key insights into the human condition that can help us and environmental researchers and communicators and proponents all better understand environmentally significant decisions and how to encourage behaviors that can help protect our natural environment. So Except this for our for, friend, for our friend Corey, who's not going to die. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he eats kale, and oh. you know, and that's his primary defense against death. Is yeah, kale the but, secret? Yeah, he, kale, he seems absolutely. to think so. Superfood, he seems yeah. to think so. <laughs> right. uh, so this is for both of you, I guess. Jump ball, whoever wants to take it first. How did you both get into this line of study and research? Sure. So I can. I'll start with that. So I did my master's on a particular pro-environmental behavior change program that was looking at uh, household flooding prevention. And then on the day of my defense, my supervisor emailed me and said, okay, don't panic, but 
one of the examiners knows about terror management theory. So look that up because they'll probably ask you some questions. Oh, brother. I <laughs> <laughs> frantically tried to Google terror management theory and figure out briefly in like the hour I had before going into my defense. Um, no, no pressure at all there. But the, uh, the examiner that came in was Dr. Sarah Wolf, who runs the Society Environment and Emotions Lab, which Stephanie and myself work out of now. So she's now my PhD supervisor. And I just found when I was able to breathe a bit more and look even further into terror management theory, just found it so interesting and felt that it really explained a lot. So before I started the PhD, I was like, well, if there's ever some funding that comes up and Sarah is taking on students, I think I'd really like to look into that more. And so that's kind of how I Isn't it funny here. how little things like that can yeah. change your whole life? Wow. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. it, that is so rando. Yeah. yeah. Stephanie, how about you? Yeah. For myself, you know, I've always been really passionate about trying to care for our environment. I think the our natural world is such an amazing, beautiful gift, and which is why I became interested in environmental psychology and communications. And then during my master's research, I became really curious about why do people engage in environmentally destructive behaviors when all logical reasons tell us not to. So specifically, I looked at why do so many Canadians drink primarily bottled water when we have this amazing, clean, safe water that's affordable and comes right out of our taps? And Dr. Sarah Wolf was my thesis advisor. And she's like, here, maybe you should check out terror management theory. (laughs) (laughs) We got to get this Sarah Wolf. We need to pay her a commission. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But so I ended up actually using terror management theory as a framework because I came so excited about it and, and I could see the connections and, and I was really interested in using it as a framework to look at both pro and anti-bottled water advertisements to consider why one set of communications might be more effective than another. And that's kind of what led me into TMT and I'm currently exploring its influence on or what it can share with us about environmental decisions still. And you're both in this society, environment and emotion Am I mangling the title? Lab? No, that's okay. right. Okay. Because I had never heard of this before. Is this a Canadian group or is it yeah, international? So Sarah, Sarah works out of Royal Roads University on Vancouver Island now. And since starting there, she recently started up this lab to sort of house all of her students that are working on different things and just sort of link the research together. So not everybody in it uses TMT, but I'd say a good portion of us do or at least are familiar with it so the big focus i would say is really looking at like how emotions generally are kind of missing from why emotions are so important to consider in environmental decision making and bringing talking about emotions and their role in environmental decision making is really i think a big core piece of what a lot of members of our lab are working on that's great because an awful lot of people would dispute the whole idea of emotions and making a decision like that so lauren Getting back to TMT for a second, let me ask you some technical terms. What, for, for our listeners, is mortality salience hypothesis? Sure. So there are three core hypotheses in terror management theory, and mortality salience hypothesis is the most studied, I'd say, and probably underpins basically the theory in general. So really what it basically says is just that mortality reminders cause people to reinforce or uphold their cultural worldviews. So things that are valued in your culture. And so what that does is kind of help people reinforce their who they are and kind of expand their sense of identity to include other things that might not be just their physical self. And then in addition, it also causes these reminders also cause people to seek out things that boost their self-esteem. So that could be engaging in activities that are valuable to all culture. So maybe you're part of a group that really likes football, for example, as we were chatting before we started recording. Maybe your in-group is a big fan of a certain team. You're going to really support that team following a mortality reminder because it helps you identify more strongly with people that are like you, if that sort of helps make sense of it. Yeah, yeah. So you're reminded of death in one way or another. I know that researchers use different ways of reminding people of death. Sometimes it's say, think about your death, but then other Mm -hmm. times they're being interviewed in front of a funeral home or they're being flashed something on a computer screen so fast that they don't consciously read it, but it's there in their unconscious mind. So 
I guess the other question then is, Stephanie, what's the difference between proximal and distal defenses to mortality awareness? Right. I think that's a tricky one, I think, for most people to grasp. So proximal defenses are those responses to conscious death thoughts. And I think Lauren mentioned these, these are about how we try to suppress and push away thoughts of death by denying, distracting, or rationalizing death away into a distant future. When I think of proximal defenses, I always think of my mom. <laughs> she's <laughs> she's a smoker. And for all my life, she used to, you know, they have those explicit cancer warnings on the cigarette packages, those pictures of gross lungs. And my mom would always cover them with stickers of like flowers and trees and animals. So, so now I recognize that as totally a proximal defense to distract away that recognition that there's a giant death warning on my cigarette package right in front of me. Um, yeah. Uh, smokers, you might also hear them say things like, oh, I'll quit next week. You know, it's not a worry for me because I'm going to quit. Or I know someone who smoked and lived a long, full life. So these are ways that we can take those conscious thoughts of death, but push them away. We don't have to worry about them. And then distal defenses are those responses to those unconscious death thoughts, maybe like you mentioned from some of those more subtle death reminders, like walking past a cemetery or an insurance logo, things like that. And they involve defending our cultural worldviews and maintaining or enhancing our self-esteem because our cultural worldviews provide us with those opportunities to achieve immortality, either literally, say, for example, going to heaven or symbolically through lasting accomplishments, like having children, donating tracts of land to conservation authorities publications, things like that, that can help us become part of something that's big and long lasting and can help us live forever symbolically. And then behavior that aligns with and upholds our worldviews is rewarded with enhanced self-esteem because we're being good humans and we feel good about ourselves. And then we're eligible for that promised immortality and we effectively manage our unconscious death anxieties. So this one's for both. And I guess now we're sort of taxiing down the runway of the thesis of our show here. How does terror management theory relate to environmental issues? Yeah, so as, as we've kind of mentioned, terror management theory hypotheses can help explain and predict behavioral trends in various different domains. And as our human lives are entirely dependent on the natural world, our behaviors informed by our cultural worldviews and our values have implications on the environment. So your responses to conscious and unconscious death fears can influence decisions like, say, for example, whether you drive a Hummer or a Tesla, whether you're a vegan or you're going to try to attempt to eat the big Texan 72-ounce steak in an hour. Or, whether or, you kale, ex- or a kale sandwich. Or like kale or a kale yeah. sandwich, yeah. Right. Or, uh, you know, whether you accept or reject climate science. Uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, just to add on a little, uh, TNT has also been used to understand sort of how people, how humans react to nature and creatures in general. We really don't like to be reminded that we're similar to other animals, that we're animals ourselves, because we know that those parts of nature die. So essentially reminding us that we're animals, just like any, everything else, is another death reminder right there. So some research has explored sort of how like explicitly and empirically if these creaturely reminders are death reminders, if they evoke death anxiety. And I think Steph's going to talk about that a bit more later. And then we should also mention, looking at TMT and environment specifically, that Stephanie and myself, as well as Sarah and another member from the C-Lab, we published a paper on how to use TMT in environmental contexts, so whether for different research interests or for practitioners, we talk a little bit about that near the end, just how that might be useful when we're trying to talk about the environment or implement environmental campaign. So maybe we can put a little link for that in the notes if anyone's interested. Oh, cool. Yeah, very good. So. I guess the question then is how, Lauren, how do you understand the climate crisis? Do you believe that it's caused by human behavior, which is hotly debated here in the U.S.? And if so, does death denial play a role in that? Yeah. So I think we can tie a little bit of the creatureliness and definitely the death denial components into this. But first, is human behavior responsible? I think absolutely. We know there's evidence out there. It's pretty resounding that we are. That doesn't mean it was intentional. It doesn't mean people are going out trying to ruin the planet. It doesn't mean that we knew, but people knew what they were doing for decades. Maybe some people did and tried to ignore it. But unfortunately, a lot of the things that we do, the activities we engage in are harming the planet. And unfortunately, the way that we handle our resources here and handle life on the planet 
kind of reinforces this Western worldview and mindset. It's very consumption focused in Western culture. We want to sort of build up like the American dream lifestyle, have we each have our own house and yard and keep growing and expanding the kind of nonstop growth that we see in economics, for example. And that could be driven a bit by this false belief that humans as a culture or as a species are immortal, that we're going to continue forever no matter what. So no matter what we do to the planet, no matter how many resources we consume, humans as a species are still going to be here forever. And that belief may be a bit of death denial in there, trying to combat that death denial by saying no matter what, we can just keep doing what we're doing. But I think that's a little bit, we kind of some part of our brains, we know, some people hopefully <laughs> know that that's not really how it's going to work out. Unfortunately, we do have to change things. So I think there's some death denial in play with just how we treat the planet and our resources. When you look at Brazil, now they're in an election. Bolsonaro is saying, no, burn the rainforest down, you know, make them into a nice savanna where we can grow crops or whatever, or cut them down and sell the logs because we can make money off of that. And when people say, well, the rainforest is the lungs of the world, they just flatly deny it. No, there's no evidence of that. No, it's got nothing to do with us. And, yeah. and the rest of the world is aghast. But how do we think about that? Is it just greed? Does terror management theory help us explain or understand some of that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of identity tied up with being environmental or not. And one of our responses to, to death reminders, whether it's messaging from other people saying that climate change is a problem we need to deal with or any of the other things on the news that remind us that we're going to die uh, or that life is at threat. So if somebody's already thinking the environment is important, these reminders are probably going to help them do more things that are environmentally friendly. But if they're not, they might go the other way. So that might be flat out denying other evidence that they hear that might get presented. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and I think a bit that also ties into that is that if we, if you accept that climate change is real and accept that the behaviors you're currently doing are causing harm, that's going to cause some dissonance and that you have to accept that what you have been doing already is wrong. And so you have to kind of accept that there's some wrongdoing happening there. And that maybe this death might come sooner than they might think if they accept that this climate science is real. So that could cause certainly some death anxiety and the immediate reaction might be just to try not to think about it. So the climate change debate has shifted of late and the deniers can no longer deny that wildfires and droughts and floods are real. But now they just dispute the science. They deny that there are human made causes why do some people reject the consensus opinion and does terror management theory help to explain the denier's behavior or point of view? Yeah. So I think that ties in a bit with what I kind of went on a bit of a tangent about there, but uh, just that this getting the science and accepting that it's real means that you have to change something about what you've been doing. It's a reminder that the future of our culture is at risk. And if, somebody is not already willing to accept that, is not already environmental, that's going to just kind of, those reminders might just push them even further in the opposite direction. We also know that on an individual level, that individual actions might not be very helpful. One person choosing the kale sandwich uh, might not make a big difference as far as our carbon emissions go, unfortunately. So then it's, it's trickier to kind of then say, okay, sure, I'll engage in more of these behaviors when you're like, I don't even know if that's going to do anything. I think, and so, I think Corey would say he just eats the kale straight without the bread. He doesn't make <laughs> a sandwich. Bread, no. It's terrible. So just kale wrapped in just kale. kale. yeah. <laughs> so, Stephanie, uh, first, I guess I should ask you to give us a quick definition or idea of what death thought accessibility is and then the aggressive reactions that we see to terms like climate change and environmental crisis, are they an instance or a question of death thought accessibility? Yeah, sure. So death thought accessibility is um, reflects like the level of consciousness around death thoughts. Now, are they conscious? But when we're engaged in those more distal defenses, they're lingering, but just under the level of the surface of consciousness. 
And our distal defenses work to kind of suppress them back to baseline levels. So absolutely, I think the aggressive reactions to climate change and environment are related to death accessibility because climate change is threatening, not only physically with like biodiversity loss, droughts, forests, all those kinds of things, but also to our ways of life. I mean, it's kind of reflected in some of the discussion we've already had about how discussions around climate change involve demands or or suggestions that we change our lifestyles, right? Maybe we need to stop irrigating golf courses in drought-prone regions, have smaller homes, you know, eat more kale, kale wraps with, with, wrapped with kale, um, and uh, reduce our dependency on cars and things like that. And it makes sense to me from a TMT standpoint that climate change then instigates death thoughts and presents persistent challenges to our current worldviews, which is really hard for us, right? And uh, it undermines our ability to then buffer those death thoughts and increases death thought accessibility. And that can definitely spark those defensive reactions as we try to reduce those that death thought accessibility back to those baseline levels that are kind of, I guess, evoked by climate change and all the challenges that it presents to us. And then as people defend their existing worldviews, that can absolutely spark those kind of very aggressive reactions. And that could be really on either side of the political spectrum. So if you're- If you're an anti-environmentalist and you hear climate change, you're more ardent in your opposition to Greenpeace and, and, you know, these tree huggers. And if you're the pro-environmentalist, you're the Greenpeace supporter and you hear climate change, you're even more aggressive. You become Greta Thunberg and wanting to uh, flay those climate deniers, it's a vicious, really a vicious cycle, isn't it? An unhelpful cycle, because really, when you have the everybody combative against each other, it, it's not conducive to finding ways to create those positive changes and helping people maybe through difficult instances where they're having to change their worldviews or how they think about things and maybe accept that the way that we were doing things previously is wrong or not the greatest thing to do, because accepting those things and recognizing those things can be hard. Yeah, and those aggressive tensions definitely don't help. Right. So, Lauren, how do distal defenses help explain the pro and anti-environment? I guess we're we're saying that, aren't we, already? Yeah. This is the in-group behavior. Am I yeah. off track here, or are you in agreement with what we're no, saying? No, that's, that's absolutely right. It's supporting of the in-group, and then paired with that is also out-group derogation. So distancing yourself from people that aren't like you. And there's TMT uh, empirical studies that are out there that have looked at this specifically. And some early results from my own research looks at this as well. And so we do see this. We're not just talking about maybe this happens. We do see that this does actually happen. And I think that that's something that's really important for environmental messaging when people are trying to communicate about climate change that maybe should remember who it is you're talking to and, and what they already find important. Great point. When we were first talking about getting together to do this, one of us used a phrase, profits over planet. And Stephanie, in her last response, said possibly the most sinful thing, stop watering golf courses. <laughs> Except for Mar-a-Lago. Mar-a-Lago, is, we have to keep No, no, no. That's never going to happen. All <laughs> golf courses. That's, that's more important than people drinking water. I believe. <laughs> so is great wealth a proximal or a distal defense against death anxiety? And how does TMT explain that phrase profits over planet? Yeah. I guess I'm supposed to ask this to Lauren. Yeah, no worries. I, uh, I thought this was a really good question because the proximal versus distal defenses is kind of tricky sometimes to figure out what exactly it is. But I think it, this would be more of that distal defense trying to reinforce the cultural values and identities. So thinking of, okay, in a Western culture, for sure, that consumerist, individualistic mindset is kind of what we value. We value success means wealth in this Western society. And so getting increasing profits, getting more things, whatever it looks like, would then boost the sense of self-esteem for that person. And then that's sort of a distal defense to these death reminders. So it's both an individual self-esteem thing, but it's also a worldview. Right. Yeah. I think so. They can connect for sure. That part of that, knowing that you're part of a culture and that you're doing things that the people around you value could help boost your self-esteem 
and I kind of function as that that death defense, knowing that okay, well, I'm secure in this part of my culture, and if I don't live, then the people that are like me will. Some people take sort of a libertarian view and say, well, we don't have to change anything. We'll just come up with technology to fix the environment. We always come up with technology to fix our mess ups. What's your take on that? To Stephanie? Yeah, I think this could, response could be described as a denial mechanism. You know, it's it's pushing that threat of environmental collapse into that distant, undefined future period. You know, we don't have to worry about that problem now. It's just going to solve itself. We don't even need to think about it. So, yes, I think it could be described as one of those like small denial mechanisms. Mm. But we in the West, particularly the American Yankee mentality, is, well, we're just going to invent our way out of this. We'll just come up with a machine that's going to suck the carbon out of the atmosphere and it'll just fix everything. And there are a lot of people who believe this. They say it with fervor that they just expect that to happen. And they haven't come up with the machine yet or the chemicals they want to spray into the atmosphere in reducing the carbon. Pretty scary prospect. But I, but I, I feel like this mindset is not rational to me maybe to them it's very rational but to me it's not how do we even think about people making decisions on issues like this when we're in this non-rational world in other words we touched on this earlier when we talked about emotion are people rational in their decision-making, both of you, I think, you could both comment on that. It's just so key to what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, for sure. People really like to think that we're rational in our decision-making. That's a lot of what the base of economics, the theory is based on, is that we're rational decision-makers, and that's how we like to, we're only going to do what's best for us, but we're really not. There's a lot more involved, and there's a whole field of behavioral economics, if anyone may or may not be familiar with it, that studies this and there's lots of good books out there that maybe we could suggest as well that I found really fascinating when I was learning about this earlier on. And there's sort of reliable just fallacies that we make. And and so we think we're making good choices, but really they're not the best. They don't make the most sense. So there's lots of interesting studies on the like something like you're trying to you have a concert ticket that you're trying to sell. You're going to think it's worth more than what someone else might think because you've already invested money in this. It's valuable to you. But someone else is like, well I'm not going to I don't really care like they because they don't own it yet. And then if you if tables are flipped, you see the same like the reverse happening. And I think it's hard for thinking about climate change and the environment because it's such a big problem and thinking again back to those individual actions it's hard to solve which we don't see an immediate effect from choosing to take the bus or to walk rather than drive our own car somewhere. And so trying to connect the the behavior action gap people have talked about a lot it's hard to really see how our actions have an effect. So then I think that makes the decision-making even harder. So that makes sense. And maybe Stephanie, if you want to talk a bit more about how emotions feed into this. Yeah, sure. That was one of the, the key takeaways in my learnings with like terror management theory. I'm really diving into why people don't seem to make those logical environmental decisions that seem to make sense for your pocketbook, the health of our planet, just for the good of everybody. And learning about how emotions and those automatic intuitions and gut feelings and really are those initial first reactions that set off those decisions that maybe your decisions are already made for you before you even start thinking about it. The brain is a fascinating organism, isn't it? It's just crazy how it does so many crazy things that you don't even know about that are going on that influence unconsciously those things that you believe without question because it's just a part of your daily routine and your beliefs and your values and how all of these different influences really influence people in their decision-making. And as Lauren mentioned, we as much as we like to think we're rational decision-makers, there's definitely so much that goes on behind the scenes that is influencing and nudging our decisions in different ways that we're not even aware of. So you, you're on the blue shirt team and the question comes up, And you've already made up your mind based on what the team's decision is. And then you look and find the data and the the supporting evidence to support your decision that you've already made. And then you claim that it's the evidence that convinced you. 
and you tell this to people and they go. So let me see that a lot with climate change. Um, Because, yeah, there is, you know, there's so much information and discussion and, and research out there that you could take. You could take data and information from both sides to prove your point either way. Yeah, that's the the confirmation bias, which is yeah. a bit of the curse of the internet. In that, if you can Google it, then somebody somewhere has will support that. Which, yeah, I feel like there's a whole other <laughs> episode <Yeah>. there. <laughs> I, I remember bias. when yeah. when I was studying marketing back in the prehistoric era, they found that most car commercials and magazines were read not by prospective buyers, but by people who have already purchased that mm-hmm. vehicle. And are looking for support after the fact that their decision was a good one. We've been talking with PhD candidates Lauren Smith and Stephanie Scholdice on climate change, terror management theory, and related subjects. We're going to take a short break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. We're having a conversation about climate change with PhD candidates Lauren Smith and Stephanie Scholdice. Ken, you got a question for the both of them. How do you incorporate terror management theory work with your environmental work? Sure. This is Stephanie. So I've been working with municipalities for more than eight years as an environmental program coordinator, in addition to my academic work. So I support solid waste, water, and wastewater initiatives that are meant to help encourage sustainable behaviors in our communities. And since learning about TMT, I am really working to integrate my ever-growing learning about terror management theory into our communication materials, our strategies, and our campaign efforts. I find that municipalities tend to focus on providing facts and information and outreach efforts, which is very important, don't get me wrong. But it's problematic because, as we've discussed, people are largely influenced by unconscious emotions. And I've also found in my work that environmental messaging tends to focus on the same things. You should recycle, drink tap water, save energy, because it's good for the planet, it's the right thing to do, and it saves you money. These are the three kind of key messages that often pop up, and which is all great and true. But these messages often speak to people who are already sustainability-oriented. And they already likely do these things. So you're not targeting anyone new. You're speaking to your own audience. They call that preaching to the choir. Exactly. Yes, that's right. So what I've learned from terror management theory is that as an environmental communicator, I can likely be more effective by developing communications that can help more people manage conscious and unconscious death thoughts. So what this means in practice is considering messages that are going to appeal to people with different worldviews and different ways of achieving self-esteem, other than being environmentally friendly, finding ways to turn environmental initiatives into hero projects that can make them feel like they're part of something that's big and lasting and important. I try to use broad identity appeals and associate people with in-groups. So you're being part of a special community or having a sense of local community and pride in your community. And I also avoid threatening messages that can maybe stimulate proximal defenses and actually push people away from embracing our messaging. And I also try to stay away from text. Again, I find it can be very text heavy, a lot of art and technical, a lot of science communication, environmental communication. So I try to bring in like powerful visual and emotional stimuli that can just be more moving. So terror management theory has taught me a lot about how to engage with our communities more effectively and try to develop more motivating communication materials. Lauren, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Sure, I could talk a little bit about just what I'm researching now. I am, as mentioned, a PhD candidate. So I use TMT as sort of the founding theory that I've structured all my work around. And what I do is, so we know that TMT has studies out there. I've been looked at whether climate change is a mortality reminder. It can be a mortality reminder for some people. So I'm sort of taking that, but focusing in on water and water communication specifically. There's lots of symbolic relationships that people have with water. But then at the same time, water management tends to be a very male-dominated sector just from the management level. So I was interested in exploring that and sort of how people respond to, to threatening water messages. So we talk about flooding and droughts and extreme weather, for example. How do people respond to that? And is it in the same ways as people respond to death reminders? So that's what I structured my first study around. And then I'm next looking at how that influences people's environmental identity. 
So are, are these threatening water messages, making people pro or anti-environmentalists like death reminders do and early stages, but so far it seems to be the case as well there. And then lastly, I'm looking at sort of how mortality reminders and this threatening water messaging influences people's appraisals of decision makers that are either like them in gender or not like them in gender. So I, a PhD takes your work and twists it around and bends it in many different ways, but gender was something I was really interested in, in and gender bias. And so my last study kind of looking at that to sort of say, okay, well, if we want, and we know that diverse groups of people are better at making decisions that'll be more effective for more different types of people. If we also know that talking about water in scary ways is going to make that more difficult to get different types of people in that group, we really need to be careful about how we're talking about it. So that's what I'm kind of hoping to figure out a little bit with that last study. That might be a very uh, academic sort of explanation. I hope not. <laughs> I hope that doesn't sound boring to people, but I think it's interesting. Oh, I mean, that's It's your work. And I, I applaud both of you. This is great from my perspective. So getting back to Stephanie, if I'm understanding this right, in your environmental work, you were looking at water reuse applications, right? And you've said, we're just running out of water, and it's a way to conserve a lot of water. But the reason people don't use this water reuse system, these systems, is because of emotional reaction. What are the reasons people don't get behind water reuse? Yes. So... As droughts become more frequent and severe, I really think water reuse seems to be the next big up-and-coming movement in water efficiency. And for those who don't know, water reuse is just taking our wastewater and treating it and then reusing it for drinking and non-drinking activities, so like irrigation, street sweeping, toilet flushing. And it can supply millions of gallons of water a day. But it's highly underutilized because of the yuck factor. People are just disgusted by the idea of using water that one touch human poop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it can lead to some really illogical decision making. My favorite example is the Orange County groundwater replenishment system. So they actually treated their wastewater to a really extremely high standard and it was completely safe to drink. But then just to appease the public's psychological kind of unease about drinking wastewater, they actually put the water back into an underground reservoir to naturally filter that water and provide that environmental buffer. But it actually made the water dirtier. So they have to retreat it and have a whole other treatment process. <laughs> so that way it's safe to drink again. Perfect. Wow. I wanted to ask you about disgust. Mm -hmm. Would you talk a little bit about your work with disgust and how terror management theory explains it? Absolutely. So disgust is widely recognized as a basic universal human emotion that likely started as a way to protect ourselves from eating or drinking something that could make us sick or kill us. But it has since evolved to protect us from psychological threats and contamination of our soul as well. Beyond the physical threats, sex, body products, and functions, immoral behaviors can all stimulate disgust. And from a terror management theory perspective, all these seemingly unique disgust stimuli have an underlying commonality in that they blur this boundary between humans and animals, which Lauren had mentioned earlier. So what they do is they remind us that we're just another flesh and blood creature. And again, this reminder disturbs us because if we're just animals, we're no more significant and our fragile bodies are just as susceptible to death and decay. So to cope, what humans do is we express disgust because what it does is it acts as an emotional protest that allows us to elevate ourselves above the frail and fleeting nature associated with the animal world. And in this way, disgust is more deeply a psychological mechanism to manage those existential anxieties. So in my doctoral research, feces is a universal disgust reminder. And I'm curious about whether the powerful disgust reactions to water reuse are so difficult to overcome because water reuse disgust is really a deeply held psychological mechanism to manage existential anxieties because water reuse is actually a creatureliness reminder because it's got that connection to human feces. So for my doctoral research, I'm looking at testing whether connections actually do exist between death anxiety, disgust creatureliness and willingness to use recycled water 
and then exploring what terror management theory can reveal about how do we better communicate about water reuse in a way that will more successfully garner public support and kind of ease some of those discussed reactions. I've never heard the word soul come into that, that analysis before, but that really is interesting, isn't it? It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, um, Ken, I cut you what, off. That's okay. When we first heard, we're talking about disgust, it was in uh, connection with Jonathan Haidt's work in moral foundations theory. And I think it's fascinating that, as you point out, that disgust originally was a evolutionarily reaction to protecting our physical organism from dangerous stuff. And I love your expression, yuck factor, when you said that the first time. There's like a little yuck factor. It's like so human. Uh, but then I, I think it's interesting that the disgust moves away from protecting the physical organism and starts to protect the psychological organism. And you're now disgusted by things that don't have anything to do with your physical body, has to do with your in-group and being disgusted by ideas as opposed to chemicals and, and germs and things. We just want to ask if moral foundations theory contradicts TMT. No, it actually aligns really well. For those who maybe don't know, moral foundations theory was developed to help explain why what is considered moral or immoral varies across cultures, but still aligns within certain themes. And it was proposed that everyone has these unconscious but automatic intuitive ethics that universally influences whether we deem certain things good or bad. But because different cultures influence these patterns differently, these themes manifest differently around the world. Similar to how in terror management theory, the problem of death exists across cultures, but how we respond based on our proximal distal defenses kind of is unique and varies between different cultures. But one of the five foundational intuitive ethics is specifically associated with disgust is that sanctity and degradation. And it's based on the religious idea of trying to live in a pure and noble elevated way and about treating the body as a temple and not tainting it with immoral activities and contaminants. So I think it very much aligns because it's really about existing in a way that's more dignified than primal animals. It's being more than just an animal and living in this um, this saintly way, I guess. So yeah, I absolutely think it's highly aligned with TMT. But that's a really interesting point that I think is worth repeating is that it depends on what culture you find yourself in. Because mm -hmm. Haidt is an American, and he's talking about American conservatives versus liberals and libertarians, but he's focused on the five moral foundations that conservatives all tend to treat equally and that the liberals tend to focus on two primarily, and then the other three less so in America, which is probably not true in other countries, other cultures. But what you're saying about purity, I think it applies to an awful lot of issues in this culture. It has to do with race, you know, pure blood. That's a, a ridiculous phrase in this day and age, but it's still it's still thought thought of as an important part of who we are. Well, we're pure blood and abortion. And a lot of these issues have to do with just purity. And like you say, soul, the purity of the soul. It's fascinating when you get beyond the facts and figures of climate change. Now you're into a whole other world. But let me get back to just the whole nuts and bolts of this, Lauren, a gray water system could save a lot of water. It seems like a good idea, but there's just a resistance to it. Why do some people hate change? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I'm going to try not to repeat anything about disgust here because I'm sure some of that plays in here as well. Gray water is still reusing water again, not as much in contact with poop, so less of a yuck factor perhaps, but uh, still, still some disgust. I think another part of why change is hard is that it often requires accepting that something we've something about what we've already been doing is wrong, which we talked a little bit about before. And some of the changes that are maybe being required or being asked to implement a system like this might go against some embedded values in the culture and then make it even harder. So maybe you're worried that 
people will label you differently or ostracize you if your in-group might think, oh, you're not a crunchy granola and that's some, something that's valued by your group. That's that, that might make it a much harder system to adopt or new behavior to adopt. Because again, if we're thinking of our death anxiety, if we're being cut out of or worried that we might be pushed out of our culture or risk our close relationships, then that's going to be something that might be really existentially threatening to do or we might risk our symbolic identity if we embrace this change that might be outside the norm or outside of what our social group does. It makes makes a person feel uncomfortable, especially yeah. when you're especially when it's revolving around something like you said. I I hadn't heard before. You said water has symbolic meaning with mm-hmm. some people. I think you said that. I don't know. I heard yeah, something I like that. that. <laughs> okay, but that's yeah, an important yeah. that's an important point. So we haven't talked about mortality prime i know that's a that's a term that you have used in the past lauren how does it relate to death thought accessibility and how do we how do you use that in your research sure so mortality primes are really just a way to remind somebody of their own mortality Uh, it's really common in psychology to use the word prime when you're trying to essentially remind somebody of something or get them to think about something that may or may not be on your conscious level So if we think of that example, we talked about a bit about the word death just flashing, that would be like a subliminal prime. So that might activate death thoughts within somebody, but on a level that they're not consciously aware of it. They're thinking about death, but they don't know that they are. Another way this can happen to prime someone with mortality is to maybe ask them about the traditional one is to ask somebody what they imagine themselves and write about thinking what's going to happen to their body when they die and then what emotions come up when they think about this so get them to write that down but then there's delay maybe they fill out a few personality surveys for five to ten minutes then ask them to do another task and that task their death thoughts will then be activated so it kind of allows this initial that proximal fear of death to just percolate down into their subconscious and then they have their death thoughts sort of circling around I think I mentioned earlier when I was rambling about my research that I measured death thought accessibility. Maybe I didn't, but I do in my first study to kind of see if these threatening water reminders act like mortality reminders. So after, in my work, I have participants reminded of either a mortality prime, so writing about their own death or writing about experiencing a threatening water situation. So either the experience of drowning, extreme thirst, or consuming contaminated water. And then after a delay, I measure death thought accessibility to see if there's death thoughts percolating and activating distal defenses among the participants. So there are a few ways to measure death thought accessibility. A really common one in other TMT research is a word fragment task. So people will see a few letters, say the word coffee, but some of the letters are blanked out. Maybe it's C blank, F, F blank, blank testing my spelling here. Uh, So you could fill that out with either coffee or coffin. So if your death thoughts are activated, you're more likely to write coffin than coffee. And so there's a number of these sets that have been developed and used in many different studies. And as with anything, there's critiques about how efficient they are, but that's one of the ones that I use in my work to kind of, to test, yeah, to test what the death, how active death thoughts are and how accessible they are. And that when you ask people to think about using water those different ways does each one access or engender death thought accessibility or are they they different yeah that's a great great question so i found that drowning did across all my groups and all the comparison fancy statistics that i did contaminated water did a little bit uh, for some of the groups but i think part of the problem there was it was it was vague the question just asked think about consuming contaminated water, if I had said more specifically with what, because that was something some of the participants said in their little, what they wrote, they said, well, I don't know, what's it contaminated with? And I'm like, yeah, that's a really good point. It could be something perfectly harmless. So it wasn't as effective. And then the extreme thirst condition that I asked people to write about really didn't seem to work at all. And I think part of that could be just because we can imagine being very thirsty but then drinking some water and be fine. So it might not be as life-threatening, but maybe that would be different if you're in an area that's really drought-prone and perhaps the threat of not getting water is actually very life-threatening. 
the participants in my study were all, I think they were all actually based in the US, although it was open to Canada, but it was online and I guess the Americans were just real keeners and filled out <laughs> faster than any Canadians could get in. Um, <laughs> Sometimes I find just, my wa- my water is contaminated with vodka, which <laughs> does, doesn't bother me at all. How did it get in there? Canada? I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't affect me. So then, Lauren, how do we reach both audiences, the ones sitting on the fence and then the true believers? Actually, it's probably like three audiences because you've got true deniers and true believers. How do we reach all these folks? Yeah, that's a really good question. Also, I know there was a, a study you, you mentioning the three groups. I think there's, oh gosh, a little outside my realm of knowledge, but I know somewhere there, somebody did a study across US just about the different levels of how people believe or don't believe in climate change. I think it's called the Six America study or something like that, just to classify all the types of people that are out there that support or don't support climate change beliefs. So I think that really you'd need a different message for all of those groups, right? We know that if you can know what's valuable to someone in either of those groups, someone on the fence, someone who super believes in climate change or really doesn't, if you know what is important to them, then you can create a message that might be more impactful for them and not activate those death anxieties, unless that's something that might be helpful for the group that's already environmental, for example, that already believes in climate change. I'm going to assume if they believe in climate change, they value <laughs> the environment, but that, I guess that might not be the case. But if they do, then a threatening message might be helpful in encouraging them to engage in more behaviors because that's something their in-group values. Something else that I have seen in research about sort of how do we encourage people to like work together and get along sort of, and that might help with getting people to support climate change action is finding something that's in common among all the groups. So I've done some research into sort of how do we get people to to just get along and work together and believe in each other. And if you can find that common ground among people, then they might be more open to them listening instead of just immediately reacting. So maybe if you're talking to somebody that's on the fence or even anti-environment or climate denier, if there's something that you have in common with that person, then maybe they can start to see you as an in-group member. And then maybe they can then listen to you more and might believe some of maybe, I don't know if science is what you want to be telling them exactly, but maybe believe what you're suggesting they do or suggest different behaviors that they do, especially if it ties to what they hold valuable. I think if you can find that magic thing that brings everybody together, you're going to win the Nobel Prize. And I mean, this is why I think TMT is so interesting, because doesn't death bring everybody together? We're all going to die. We but, think so. We thought yeah. so prior to COVID and yeah. then found that it just divided people more. Yeah. And all of a sudden, if you show up in a mask, you're labeled as some kind of idiot by half mm-hmm. the population. And, and Or if it, you're not wearing a mask, you're like half, a, yeah. you're a murderer. Yeah. Yeah. So what we thought, oh, if we just all face a common enemy, a common threat, well, we'll all pull together. Well, here it just divided everyone worse. Yeah. I think we had maybe a, maybe a month that was people seemed to be really helping each other out. And then, yeah, the most terrified month. Yeah. 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 That was a bad one. Stephanie, we read your article, Evidence of Mortality, Salience, and Psychological Defenses in Bottled Water Campaigns. He pauses to take a deep breath. <laughs> it was very exciting. <laughs> what is needed to make a difference with climate change? More data or something else? You know, I think we've already talked about how there's enough information out there for people to support their view one way or another. And more information isn't going to change that. People will pick info that's going to support their predetermined positions. Really, what I think we need is to ditch that information rationality assumption. You know, that idea, I've seen people say it explicitly, that if people just knew, if they just knew, they would do the right thing. They would make the right decision. And we hold on to that sometimes. And yes, information knowledge is important, but alone, it's not going to stimulate the action that that we need. What I think is that we as environmental communicators need is to recognize and explore how those automatic intuitions, impressions, and feelings influence our perceptions and conscious decision-making, often unknowingly. And that includes how these existential concerns influence our our decision-making and what this means for how we can best connect with people about climate change. 
And I really want to reiterate what Lauren mentioned about the importance of really knowing your audience and looking at what do they value and what are their worldviews. Because I think especially personally anyway, someone who lives in in the environment and cares about the environment and it's what I research and read about and you know what I do for work, it's easy to forget that it's not other people's whole lives, right? That people have other things on the brain and see the world differently and having to recognize that and come to people where they're at is really important. Can we just, with the time we've got left, just explore a little bit some other ideas? We talked a lot about self-esteem and how that is central to Ernest Becker's idea about death anxiety and how it's a primary defense against death anxiety and terror management theory looks hard at that. But then Ken and I, over the last year or two, we've been looking at things like humility and gratitude. We've been looking at mindfulness. Some people talk about Buddhism and Buddhist practices. So let me throw this to you first, Stephanie. Where is there hope? And what other ways of looking at this or what other solutions or where would you look for hope? I think Lauren's going to dive into this a little bit more than me, but one of the areas that I'm really fascinated in is about the idea about how connecting with nature can really help. Nature can inspire those feelings of awe and actually make people feel more connected to others and the natural environment. It can make us experience more gratitude and generosity, lessen our desire for materialism. And so I'm really excited about the idea that maybe working to bring people in contact with nature and experiencing the beauty of it and recognizing the gratitude of it, how that can, how, what, what potential that has. In general, I'm really excited about the work of our whole team at the Sea Lab with Dr. Wolf on the influence of emotions, including awe around environmental decision-making and, and what we can uncover to help make a positive difference in the world. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Lauren? I find it so interesting that Buddhism comes up because it keeps coming up in my life. I'm not out searching for it, but it keeps coming to me. I don't know if, what that means. It's the but universe. I, it the universe pay, is communicating yeah. with Listen you. Listen to pay the signs, Lauren. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Celestine prophecy. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I have. I had a colleague that was researching mindfulness. So I, whenever I saw a paper about mindfulness, it kind of popped up. They're like stuck out in my in my mind. And then I started seeing some that were looking at mindfulness combined with TMT. And that was on, was just really interesting. I was like, oh, cool. Like our worlds collide here. But there has been a lot of research in sort of the nursing and gerontology spaces to use mindfulness to help people with different illnesses or nurses experiencing stress manage all of that with mindfulness. And a recent paper that I came across with Park and Pazinski, one of the TMT founders, was looking at Buddhism, meditation, death anxiety, and the influence on worldview defense. So found that people that were meditating more or had experience with Buddhism decreased their defensive responses to death reminders. So it could be that this is some way to make death anxiety a bit less threatening, maybe because the mindfulness and Buddhism practices emphasize that connectedness to other things, that connectedness to nature, even that Stephanie was mentioning, that collective identity that you know, we're talking about that helps people make decisions together. Maybe that's all sort of connected here. And another thing I find really interesting in Buddhism is that there's a specific and explicit effort to meditate and to think about and accept death. And I'm no, I'm not a Buddhism expert by any means, but I have seen this come up when I've been researching it. And I find that's really interesting. And part of something that I really think is that if we can, in the West, we have such a medicalized, sanitized relationship with death. Most deaths happen in the hospital rather than in a home. And so we don't really have that emotional release even. Our our concept of grief is all kind of wacky and we're not really, there's like rules around how to grieve. And I think that's maybe perpetuating all of these, our death anxiety and our perhaps negative defenses. So we don't have a great relationship with death, but I feel like maybe through Buddhism or other ways we can improve that relationship. And then we can just accept that death is just part of life and life yeah, it's great. There's also not great parts of it. And death is just one other part of it. Go ahead, Steph. I was just going to say, this really reminds me of the death cafes that I read about. You know, you see these mm. kinds of things sparking up, like they're happening. There was a group, I wasn't able to get out to a meeting just because I was so fascinated, but there were people who got together and just had coffee and talked about death and made it more of a comfortable experience. And just, again, that mindfulness and just that chance to talk about it. 
There's one I know. I haven't attended it, but the New York Society for Ethical Culture in New York City, and they have a death cafe regularly. I think it's once a week or more. Have you ever been? Has anyone here ever been to something like that? Uh, Nope. No. Steve and I are in the fourth quarter of the game now. Yes. Uh, I try to joke about it with family and friends. And oh, they don't want to hear it. It, it. Oh, my gosh. They get so mad at me. They yeah. don't want to hear it. No. I did just want to say quickly, if anybody wanted to know more about Buddhism and mindfulness and fear of death, there is a researcher at the University of Victoria named well, it's James Rao or James Rowe. I'm not sure how to pronounce it because I don't actually know him. But He's doing really cool sounding research out there and ties in with environment as well. That'd yeah. be cool. I, can, I can send some links over. Of that would be great. And Lauren, like you, men- <laughs> you mentioned some books earlier that you wanted to say the titles of. Do you want to say those yeah. or just li- or just link them or both? Um, if you I think the list. Yeah, say them if the listeners go. would like to know them. The one book on behavioral economics and decision making is called Predictably Irrational by Daniel wow. Kahneman and Dan Irielli, I may not be pronouncing that right, but um, great, great title. Kahneman is a Nobel Prize winner, I think in economics, but really, it was really interesting. And it gives lots of examples on all of these decisions that we think we can make rationally, but we actually, when you go out and see how people are making these decisions, we make irrational ones all the time. Super. So know. folks, we've been talking with PhD candidates, Lauren Smith and Stephanie Schuldice about climate change, terror management theory, related issues. Lauren and Stephanie, thank you both for a terrific conversation. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. This has been really great. Really fun. Thanks so much for having us. We might try to hit you up again at some point in the future. We hope you'll take our phone call. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds great. Okay. Okay. Super. We've been talking with TMT and environmental experts, Lauren Smith and Stephanie Schuldice. Ken, what are your takeaways? Steve, I was struck by their practical use of terror management theory. They said TMT is important for helping us explain, understand, and predict human behaviors. It can help environmental researchers, communicators, and proponents all better understand environmentally significant decisions and how to encourage behaviors that can help protect our natural environment. Their studies include why emotions are so important considering environmental decision-making the aggressive reactions to climate change and environment issues are related to death-thought accessibility because climate change is threatening not only physically, but also to our ways of life. Climate change instigates death-thoughts and presents persistent challenges to our current worldviews, which is very hard for us. It undermines our ability to then buffer those death-thoughts and increases death-thought accessibility that can definitely spark defensive reactions. When you have everybody competitive against each other, where they're having to change their worldviews and how they think about things, and maybe accept that the way they were doing things previously is wrong or maybe not the greatest thing to do, accepting those things and recognizing those things can be hard. It's the support of the in-group, and then paired with that is out-group derogation. So distancing yourself from people that aren't like you There's TMT empirical studies that have looked at this specifically, and some early results from their own research looks at this as well. Regarding profits over planet, what we value is a consumerist, individualistic mindset. Success means wealth in this Western society. And so increasing profits, getting more things, would then boost the sense of self-esteem for a person. That's a distal defense to death reminders, and so it's both an individual self-esteem issue as well as a worldview problem. Lauren and Stephanie are considering messages that are going to appeal to people with different worldviews and different ways of achieving self-esteem, finding ways to turn environmental initiatives into hero projects that can make people feel like they're part of something that's big and lasting and important. The reason why change is hard is that it often requires accepting that something we've been doing is wrong. A system might go against some embedded values in our culture. So maybe you're worried that people will label you differently or ostracize you. That might make it a much harder system or new behavior to adopt. If we're being cut out of or worried that we might be pushed out of our culture or risk our close relationships, that's something that might be existentially threatening to do. 
or we might risk our symbolic identity if we embrace change that might be outside the norm or outside what our social group does. Stephanie is really excited about the idea of bringing people into contact with nature, experiencing the beauty of it, and recognizing the gratitude of it. Nature can inspire feelings of awe and eventually make people feel more connected to others and the natural environment. It can make us experience more gratitude and generosity and lessen our desire for materialism. Lauren points out that Young Chin Park at University of Vermont and Tom Pazinski at University of Colorado at Colorado Springs, who's one of the TMT founders, were looking at Buddhism, meditation, death, anxiety, and the influence on worldview defense. They found that people that were meditating more or had experience with Buddhism decreased their defensive responses to death reminders. It could be that this is some way to make death anxiety a bit less threatening. Maybe through Buddhism or other ways, we can improve our relationship with death and accept that death is just a part of life. Lauren said there are lots of good books out there that they suggest. Predictably Irrational, The Hidden Forces That Shape Our Decisions, by Dan Ariely. Mortals, How the Fear of Death Shaped Human Society, by Rachel E. and Ross C. Menzies. We have links to them on our website. Dr. James Rowe's website is www.jameskrowe.com slash research.html. And the C-Lab website is s-e-e-l-a-b dot c-a. If you would like access to the paper Lauren and others published on TMT and climate change, you can contact us through our website, www.thehubforimportantideas.com. Thank you, Lauren and Stephanie, for your insights and important ideas. It was a wonderful conversation. Important ideas as always. Folks, join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. Email your feedback or leave a comment on an Apple Podcast review. Let us know what you want and how we can improve. Become a part of our community of people who value these important ideas. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. Support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash thehubimportantideas. We are 100% listener supported. And please check out our award-winning documentary video series, Conversations with Solomon, Exploring Human Motivation, on YouTube. Thank you for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well. This has been a Contemporary Heroism Initiative production.